writer's room is a very private room. I've never been in a writer's room, except to deliver fake dog shit and someone's sandwich. But and that was his first. <laughs> What now? <laughs> oh, that of course. <laughs> But uh, no, I've never been in the writer's room, and I don't belong there. I don't mean to ascribe it magical powers, but it's a very specific energy, and they. On the reboot, they had great energy in the writers' room, and it takes very little to throw that off. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Candace Bergen, star of stage and screen, and author of two New York Times best-selling memoirs, Knockwood and A Fine Romance. I'm Linda Sievertson, and this is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. If you're on the younger end of the spectrum, listening to us right now, you might recognize Candace best from movies like *Miss Congeniality*, *Ride Wars*, *Sweet Home Alabama*, the recent film *Book Club*, or from her hosting gigs on SNL, where she was the first female to wear the five-timer jacket. But if you're hovering around middle age, more like me, you might still recall her Oscar nomination for *Starting Over* with Burt Reynolds, or. Cheering on her irreverent and politically progressive character of Murphy Brown for ten years, where Candace was the highest-paid actor on TV for a long time, she won five Emmys. You guys for Best Actress before she requested they just take her out of the running altogether. As you'll see, she's super humble like that. Candace reprised her role of Murphy Brown last year for a one-season reboot with Hillary Clinton coming on the first show. But she has mad fans, and it may be coming back. We'll know next month. Candace is Hollywood royalty, as they say. Her father Edgar was a famous comedian, an actor, and vaudeville ventriloquist. When Candy was little, her only sibling at the time was Charlie McCarthy, an impudent dummy beloved by millions. She performed with her father and Charlie as a child, and even appeared on Groucho Marx's quiz show. You bet your life. She was married to the French screenwriter and film director Louis Malle until his death in 1995. Louis won an Oscar during his career and was nominated for others, but it's his role as the father of their daughter that still lives on for me from the pages of a fine romance. When I'm designing these episodes, I'm always thinking about you, our listeners, and about what I can bring you that we haven't done yet. I try to put my head into yours a bit and ask, what would be really valuable for them in their creative process? Which brings me to today's guest co-host. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me reference the name Betsy Rappaport many times. She's one of my dearest friends and my mentor for the past 18 years. Betsy has edited hundreds upon hundreds of books for publishers. And brings a unique perspective to this episode on the topic of collaboration. I remember when we first met; it was through an editing client of mine who signed with Betsy when she was a top editor at Crown Books. And I was thinking, okay, I'm in Los Angeles, 2,800 miles from the epicenter of my industry in Manhattan. I've written a few books. I'm writing for a magazine. I've got editing clients that I adore, but I want to be so much better. And I thought, if I were working at a publishing house, I would, if I was lucky, like Betsy had been, I'd have been taken under the wing of some great editor and given mentoring day after day on the job. But I didn't have that working from my little 600 square foot shack in Los Angeles. So when Betsy ventured off on her own to freelance, I took six months off from client work, and I paid Betsy to teach me how to be better, to show me what I didn't know I didn't know. I started off by sending her a few hundred pages of a book I was working on, and the line editing and the back and forth began. It was the best career decision of my life. Betsy ultimately threw me ghostwriting and magazine work she didn't have time for, and I still pay Betsy to advise me and make me better. And I think this is the key for anyone out there who wants a mentor: do not ask for freebies. I wanted Betsy to want to give me advice. To love the idea of spending an hour or two or twenty-two with her eyeballs on my work, or over the phone giving me the inside scoop on how things really worked. We didn't, and we don't always agree. We have different sensibilities and histories, and we live in different worlds. And it's been a two-way learning street. Also, 
I had to convince her to raise her rates one year because they were too freaking low, frankly, for one of the greatest editors in the biz. Betsy has collaborated with some of the biggest names, as you'll hear, including for Candace Bergen. In my eyes, these two are the perfect example of literary collaboration. Editorial romance, if you will. So here we go. Welcome. I mean, I have no work habits whatsoever, but let's just dive in and see what you get. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hilarious. (laughs) Candace, for someone who's written two New York Times bestselling memoirs that are phenomenal, I think it's hilarious that you're so humble, but okay. If if you want to be, go for it. Well, no, I mean, I wrote the end of the book at two in the morning sitting in bed, so... My work habits are not what you'd call organized. If that's what it takes to get on the New York Times bestseller list, I'm co-signing. I'm going to do all right. What it it takes is a fierce PR woman. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I see we're going on the lipstick on the pig route. Fine. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, Candace, some of our guests who became household names before the advent of social media They're pretty resistant to posting things on their own. But you, on the other hand, are rocking it. I love your Instagram account. It makes me laugh all the time. Can you tell us the story of watching the eclipse and how it led to your fabulous Ho tagline? Oh, that that was a good one. And that I never got... I broke the internet or something with that. It was got (laughs) huge. I never got so many hits. Jane Fonda had brought... Eclipse watching cardboard glasses for us right. to watch the eclipse. And I just handed my phone to the producer and said, can you take a snapshot of us watching the eclipse? And we're all actors. We know the drill. So we just did it. And she took the picture and uh, it flew. Well, it was Diane Keaton, Mary Steenburgen, and Jane Fonda and yourself. And you were filming the movie. We were then... filming a movie called The Book Club. Which I loved. Which is and so, so funny. You, you were so, so you good. So you posted that. You posted that yourself on Instagram. I and did, then what yes. I, I'm actually able to post on Instagram, which surprises <laughs> me, but I can. <laughs> and I'm, in fact, I'm very proud of my Instagram account. I take great pride in my posts and framing the photographs and trying mm. to come up with a caption that people will... Re- and then I get complaints. When I just have like a static photograph without a witty caption and I'm, yeah. you're complaining now, but, and the women who it's mostly women who look at it are always so sweet. There's like none of the internet meanness or anything. The no. Instagram yeah. group is very well curated. <laughs> they tend to only follow people they love. I love the bio picture of you. It looks like you have a whole mouthful of French fries. Is that what's going on in that face? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was at a restaurant in London in the Michelin building, and my daughter and I were having lunch. That's a great picture. Okay, so you went from 5,000 when you posted this. I think you said you had 5,000 followers on Instagram, and then what happened? And now I have almost 140,000, which is minuscule by comparison to a Kardashian, and yet (laughs) I haven't lowered that. Is that our barometer, really? (laughs) Is what? (laughs) That's our barometer, Kardashians? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) Then didn't somebody call you a very funny name that you then embraced? Oh, yeah. When I posted the eclipse photograph, I got a troll that said, you guys look like a bunch of tired-ass honky hoes. And I was so... (laughs) I just thrilled to it. So I changed that to my screen name which, yeah. in fact, was almost the same screen name. It was old white woman, and then it just changed to tired-ass honky ho. So it's <laughs> really just kind of one step farther. Oh and didn't God. you then commission an embroidered pillow for the set of the Murphy Brown reboot? I did. I asked for a pillow, which is in the living room of the Murphy Brown townhouse. I ordered a sweater to have it embroidered on the front. I've ordered <laughs> mugs to have it. And anytime I post a mug, everybody goes nuts and wants it. Women love tired-ass honky-ho. So I, I have to uh, 
<laughs> I'm actually thinking of marketing mugs, but I don't know who a marketer is. Oh, I think you should, and I think I can add, hook you up. This is your ticket out of Palookaville yes. for sure. Yes, <laughs> Betsy's got all the hookups on that stuff. Okay, Betsy, I'll talk to you later. Okay, yes. We'll take it off the air. <laughs> all right, so Candace, Betsy tells me that you are an incredible writer, which I know from reading you, and she said, you know, this isn't always the case with big celebrities who often use ghostwriters. Which made me wonder, have you always been a writer? And did you keep diaries or journals as a kid? I have always been a writer. And when I did my first movie, when I had just turned 19, I did a movie called The Group. And I did an article on the filming of it for Esquire magazine. And then I did a few other articles for Esquire magazine. One on roller derby women, which was really fun. And one of the details of that was the announcer came to work with a briefcase, and when he opened it, all that was in it was lemon halves. And I said, uh, excuse me, but he said, cuts the phlegm. <laughs> and it was just, you know, full of details like that. And then I did a piece for Esquire on Oscar Levant, whom I found dead. And, um what? Well, I did a piece on Oscar Levant because I'd read The Importance of Being Oscar, and I loved, I just loved him. And I asked if I could interview him, and I did. And he was in his pajamas, and he was courting me during the interview. It was very sweet. He was playing the piano, and the piano was thatched with sheet music. It was like this huge hop of (laughs) sheet music on the piano. And I said, well, Oscar, if I could just have another few minutes, I could come back later in the week, and then we'd be done. He'd say, great. He said, how about Thursday at 4? I said, okay, I'll see you then. And I called at 2, and I said, Oscar, is it still okay for me to come at four? And he said, no, four is too late. You need to come over right now. And when I got there, he was dead. Oh. Oh, good Lord. Okay. So. (laughs) Well, did they suspect you were foul play? Is there something, is there a confession you want to make? They put a button on the story. (laughs) Yeah. And there were padlocks on the door because he used to try to break out at night to get drugs and and his drug guy and his wife (laughs) had to put padlocks on the door to keep him in the bedroom. That reminds me of my fiance who threatened to put a padlock on the refrigerator when I I met him and my 18-year-old ate all of his food. (laughs) Well, that's understandable. (laughs) Well, so it's quite a leap from writing articles for Esquire to making the decision to write your first memoir, Knock Wood. So when how I was did like you well, I mean, I had faith. no life. I had no life experience. And Barbara Walters said, where's the conflict? I said, I'm sure I'll find something. <laughs> and in fact, I'm much prouder of that book than the second book. Because it was about my father and vaudeville. And it was such a good experience. I went to the Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center and researched vaudeville. And it was so much fun to write about that because it was such a ripe time in America and so filled with characters. There was a guy who used to vomit frogs and there was a, I mean, Alive. there was an opera yeah, there was an opera singer who would ride bareback on her head singing opera. Oh LaBelle Titcomb, her name was. I mean, it was so much fun. And you really so brought you your father back to life. I mean, his career was in the shadows by then. And I don't think a lot of contemporaries understood that he found fame as a ventriloquist on the radio. So what did he think of you bringing a whole new generation of readers to his attention? I don't know that that happened, though, Betsy. And there's not a broad market for ventriloquists on or (laughs) off the radio. But his writing, my father wrote his own material and had writers as well. But the writing was very smart and very snappy, and I think that's what people responded to. Mm. Well, how did and you I think make Johnny Carson leap, said that your father had been the inspiration behind him learning how to be a ventriloquist. You know, he told me that, and I forgot. Yeah, it's true. It's Isn't that true. amazing? So amazing. But I like okay, that who was the about ch- how you made the leap. Yeah, who was your cheerleading squad then? You've said you have no writing habits. So how did you do it? How did you go from a 1,500-word article to a 60,000-word book? Well, it took me five years of not writing. And, <laughs> um, and I, 
I'd go away and do a movie, and then I'd start writing again. And then I'd go away and do another movie, and I'd come back three or four months later and start writing again. So there was no continuity, which obviously you need if you're working on a short or a long piece. You need to have concentration and be able to maintain focus on it. So I just kept interrupting it, and I was asked if I was interested in writing a book. I didn't initiate it myself because what would I have written about? But writing about my father was the key to the book. And how did that compare when it became a New York Times bestseller? Did that mean more to you than getting an award for, say, an acting job? Well, I didn't get any awards for acting jobs until Murphy Brown, so I really couldn't compare it to anything. But it was a very big deal for me, and I was Mm. thrilled, of course. And it was a lot of work. I mean, it's just a lot of work. Even with Betsy doing the second one, helping me edit it, and it's just more work than you want, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also want to know how this helped you develop confidence in yourself, and not just around your writing, but also your creativity in general. Because it wasn't just that Knockwood sold well, the reviews were rapturous. And you wrote in a fine romance, you had some snippets from your journal about how validating that was. So I'd love to hear more about the process of developing confidence in your own talent. I mean, you, University of Pennsylvania wasn't necessarily in love with you as a student, but then you went on and you published all those Esquire articles, often with your own photographs, which are amazing. At some point, Don Hewitt even wanted you to join the roster of 60 Minutes. Then you hit the bestseller list. So you had a lot of external evidence that you were really, you had real writing chops. But when I was working with you, I have to say, I found you almost excessively humble. <laughs> so yeah, well, I'd love to hear more about the process of you learning to believe in yourself. After I wrote the first book and then life happened and I fell in love with Louis Mel and we were married and then I had a child and then I felt that I was not able to write anymore. I just felt like there had been some kind of neurotransmitter fritz in my brain. And I just didn't think I was able to write, which was okay because I could do a few other things. Then when I was sort of bored, not working, and I thought about writing, isn't it a fine romance? I thought, I'm going to need some help on this because I don't have any faith that I have any ability in the process. So I contacted Betsy and Also, by then, publishers were cutting back so dramatically that there really wasn't editing of any kind. No kidding. And I remember, Betsy, when you first came, and we both thought that I'd talk and you'd write the book, and then gradually... That's not what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I thought. I thought you'd be doing it. And, um, And then it came back to me, and I always have... I mean, even emails that I send, I spend a certain amount of time on them, and I enjoy a certain amount of writing, and I do have confidence in having a very small controlled ability in it. Again, a little excessive humility, if you ask me, (laughs) because you once again hit the bestseller list and once again got terrific reviews. Same publicist. I see. We're going to play it that way. Okay, fine. So, Candace, after reading A Fine Romance and listening to it on audio, I see a lot of... That's a tedious process. Oh, no kidding. The reading of the book goes on and on. It goes for days. I kept ordering (laughs) tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. I probably put on five pounds doing it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I hear you. In the book threaded throughout, I see a lot of love stories related to life and friendships and work, but there are three main loves. There's your daughter, Chloe, your late husband, Louis, and your current husband, Marshall. And I think your book title is perfect, A Fine Romance. How did you come up with the title? It just seemed, well, I mean, because it's a love letter to my daughter. And it just seemed like it said it all and that it, I mean, it's a romance, but it's not a usual romance, and it is also about great loves. But, I mean, my daughter's by far at the top of that list. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful At what point in the writing did that title land for you? I think sort of in the middle of the book. And I don't think I had any alternate titles either. And who wrote the original song, A Fine Romance? Well, that's Was it Harold Arlen? Might have been. Yeah. Also, the fact that the lyrics are a fine romance with no kisses, a fine romance, my friend, this is. I mean, it just sums up a kind of idiocentric romance. It's a unique romance. Yeah, a fine romance, my good fellow. You take romance, I'll take jello. You're calmer than the seals <laughs> oh, in the Arctic God. Ocean. At least they flap their fins to express emotion. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's Jerome Kern. Is, there we go. Ah, uh, <laughs> I love all of those lyrics. I mean, the great lyrics of those songs, I just could listen to. I mean, the finesse of the great songs is so dazzling to me. A fine romance, you won't nestle. A fine romance, you won't wrestle. I might as well play bridge with my old maid aunt. I haven't got a chance. This is a fine romance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On this topic of titles, Betsy, I'd love to talk with you for a sec about what makes a good title. I'm sure you have thoughts on that. I'm drawn to a lot of books because the titles are so poetic. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when they're counterintuitive or they're evocative. Yeah, I mean, I was working with Boyd Vardy on his memoir about growing up on the savannas of South Africa, and it wasn't until he was finished with the manuscript that we combed through and all of a sudden the phrase Cathedral of the Wild jumped out. And the funny thing is, even if you've been struggling, the second the right title appears, it's as if it always was, and you think, why Mm -hmm. couldn't I have grasped it before? I was thinking about Jeanette Wall's The Glass Castle, and... I love that title because it works on so many different levels. On the one hand, the glass castle is the castle that she and her father drew together when she was small and that he always promised her he would build her. But of course, it also works as a metaphor because this is a book about a woman fleeing her impoverished, crazy childhood. And so it's about the fragility of the world that she's trying to navigate while keeping her past a secret. A lot of times... When I was working at Random House, I would often have battles. I would want to give things more evocative titles. I was working with a cardiologist named Dean Ornish, and he wanted to publish a book based on his research called the Open Your Heart Program. And it was something about reversing heart disease, but he honestly felt that the most important part of the research was getting people to open up and talk to each other. But then the CEO of Random House came along and said, nope. We're going to call it Dr. Dean Ornish's Program for Reversing Heart Disease, you know, which, of course, just sings, you know. But it was clear that sometimes you just have to go with clarity over poetry. But, Linda, I mean, there are examples of books that had, in many ways, better titles. The Good Soldier, Ford Maddox Ford, wasn't it the saddest story? And the publishers mm. told him to change it. I thought that was... Interesting. And of course, I prefer the saddest story to sure. a good soldier. Yeah. I always like titles that, like you said, Betsy, are counterintuitive, that make you just go, huh? What is that? I have to pick it up. Like a heartbreaking work of staggering genius or who moved <laughs> my cheese. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember I told that, that I'm working on a book based on the advice from this podcast, Candace, and it's called Beautiful Writers, but I wasn't going to call it that. I was trying to find all these other names because I thought, you know, maybe it's just, it sounds a little vain. It sounds like we're talking about people's outsides and not their insides. And I don't know, I'm not really comfortable with it. So I'm coming up with all these ideas and I call Betsy and I tell her, she goes, Linda, what is wrong with you? Beautiful Writers. I'm like, oh, sorry, okay. Well, for it's instance, the name of to the me, podcast. I know, but it sounds to me like there's no men in there. There are lots of men. It just sounds to me like it has to be people who look like Liv Ullman or something. Um, <laughs> I know. I love, that's why I thought it's shallow. I need to change the name. Betsy wouldn't have it. And I'm grateful. <laughs> I also love, there's over. a wonderful memoir by Haven Kimmel called Zippy, which was her nickname <laughs> as a child. But I especially love the subtitle, which is called Growing Up Small in Moreland, mm. Indiana. And I just love that you understand the world of that book instantaneously. You have never heard of Moreland, Indiana, but you know exactly what this book is going to encompass. You know she's going to work small and deep and rich, and she absolutely does. Yeah. 
Well, and I think a good subtitle is really, really important. Like with beautiful writers, it's not going to be anything flowery. It's just the magic and mayhem of writing bestsellers, which explains that it's not about people's physical beauty. So, Katie, when did you know you were going to call your first memoir Knock Wood? I'm still not happy with that title. But, uh, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it was okay. It's I sort of liked it, but I wish it had been a little, it had had a little more style, a little more snap. And I have lots of other titles. I've forgotten what they are now, but. But well, I, I love I sort that because of, it's not only a play on the obviously the wooden ventriloquist dummy, but it's all about all the luck. serendipitous events in your life, yeah, you know, that caused you to feel luck. you were. Well, of course, you have created your own luck your entire life, and it's also about gratitude. I mean, it's about mm-hmm, serendipity yeah. and about being grateful for the serendipity in your life, mm, which is also that. a lovely theme of a fine romance too. I was just rereading mm-hmm. the chapter where you visited your mother's grave and just started thanking her for all the gifts that she had given you. I thought that was so lovely. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I've forgotten I the book, Betsy. So I <laughs> it's like to read it again. <laughs> I remember you I used to edit Dave Barry on. and he went on I think it was Johnny Carson and Johnny asked him all these questions about his books and he said, I don't know. I wrote yeah. the book but I didn't read it. Well, Well, Candy, I went back and reread A Fine Romance in preparation for this conversation, and I just fell in love with you and your work all over again. Betsy, it was your work, too, and there is, in writing a memoir, for me, there was at least huge amounts of anxiety, and you can see it. Sally Field wrote a memoir a few months ago that she really dug deep, and I knew what it cost her because, unfortunately, the person she was writing about had died, so that removed some of it. But it was the most revealing book and brutally honest. But she did a lot of homework. She took writing courses. She prepared herself to write that book. And it showed. And she was unflinching in Uh what she wrote about but there's a huge amount of anxiety that comes about writing, about relationships, about parents. Because if you're going to do it, you have to do it. And yeah. you have to also try to do it without hurting people. So it's a very fine line to walk. I felt oh, you yeah. walked that tightrope really well. And I think when you brought me on board, you used the word extractor because you were afraid that you might not have the intestinal fortitude to go into all that territory. And of course, the role of an editor is not to care about how painful it might be for you, but just to keep saying, hey, go deeper, go deeper. I have to tell you, it was some of the most moving times I spent with you when we were going through those boxes of memorabilia and you Mm. were showing me Louis' letters and notes that Chloe had written you and I remember just sitting across from you and my throat closing, fighting back tears. What was that like for you to revisit all those letters? Well, on one hand, it's a great exercise to go through because you're excavating your life and you're digging up things you were proud of and things you were ashamed of and you're kind of acknowledging both of them. And I think there's something in a way that It helps you to own who you are in Mm -hmm. a way that one wouldn't ordinarily. But it's just a mosaic of just the digging and digging. And of course, the more you reveal, the more that bubbles up. But I think it helps you appreciate the people in your life and the luck and the hard times. I mean, it just, I think it's very enriching. And I remember you reading some letters out loud, and then you would look at me and fold it up, you know, those little blue sheets of paper and say, we're not going to use that one. <laughs> so I think you were very <laughs> conscious of, this is for me, and this is not for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Louis would have appreciated your diplomacy there. Oh, Candace, you know, when you were writing about Louis with the knit Disney mouse cap, when it was cold in New York City, and he would wear your cap with the large felt ears and the eyes and the nose and the tail that hung down the back. And you said he would wear this everywhere. He looked ridiculous because he'd also wear it with suits and an overcoat. Yeah. He wore it to the theater, to the ball games, and to pick up food. He looked like a refugee, and it's one of the things I love most. 
Were you laughing or crying when you wrote that? Oh, laughing. I mean, it was one of the best things about Louis because he was a very elegant man. And he would wear it with coats that he'd gotten in Germany, sort of loading coats. And he'd wear it with, I mean, he just put it on because it was a warm knit cap, but it happened to have eyes and ears and a tail. And um, <laughs> and he never referenced it. So he'd be in conversation with people on the sidewalk oh, who were trying to talk to him, but it was hard to keep a straight face. But you were describing his burial, and here you tucked into the coffin all these erudite books of philosophy. But didn't you also put those beautiful, goofy slippers that Chloe had gotten yeah. on his feet? Yeah. And that sort of sums up all the contradictions we, of that wonderful book. We put in a French book called Le Petoman, which was about this famous farter in France. And he would perform, and he could, I mean, this guy took it to a new level, to an art form, really. And he <laughs> could play songs, and, I mean, the Marseillaise. And, and so we put a book in there about, I mean, it was a more eccentric coffin than many. <laughs> you say that your pal Nora Ephron got the perfect revenge on her cheating hubby with her hit heartburn. But you weren't out to get any revenge on anyone, but... I still am thinking it must have been a little scary for you to be writing about all these people. Did anybody take issue with anything? Did you show everybody what you had written about them ahead of time? How did that in work? The first book, in the first book, there was a major issue, so I changed the name. And then in the second uh, book, did you tell people you were sharing their beautiful letters and memories? Well, Louis had died. Chloe is a writer, and she was Chloe was wonderful because she read the book twice. She read it once as my daughter, and then she read it again as an editor and made notes and corrections. And she said, I have not said anything because I did not want to interfere with your artistic process. She was very respectful. And I mean, there are things now that I wish I had cut, but it's a ship that sailed. So... Well, for me, I've done extensive interviews over the years with some of your dearest friends, which I wasn't expecting to see them in the pages. People like Ali McGraw and Sandy Gallen and Sally Field and Sherry Lansing and Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. And it made me teary to think how blessed I've been to be able to know these people. And do you ever marvel at how looking at your life all the way back to childhood with your parents to now, do you ever think, my God, it's been like one long line of incredibly rich interactions. I've had a great life filled with unique and accomplished and complicated people. I really, until my current husband, who runs with a very different crowd and and, uh, a far more conventional crowd, but I've just been so blessed. And the places I've been and lived and worked, and it's just been a great, great life. It's been a fine romance. How about you, Betsy? You've edited for President Jimmy Carter and Carrie Fisher and Martha Beck and Dr. Dean, who we just talked about. Do you ever pinch yourself and think, <laughs> how did I get so lucky? I well, you know, Betsy distinguished herself at Yale. Betsy was a hoo-ha yeah. at Yale. Right, Betsy? Tell her. <laughs> what? I was not. <laughs> what are you talking You had some English English honors thing, or you had something at Yale that you Oh, I won the Wallace Fiction Prize. Yeah, but otherwise, I really... Well, the only thing I was absolutely certain of when I graduated was I had ruined my life by majoring in science and then not going to medical school or graduate school. So I'm an object lesson to every 22-year-old who is positive that picking the wrong major just dooms you to a life of woe. So, but yeah, I was certainly not a big hoo-ha there by any stretch. What was amazing about getting to work with you, Candy, is that not only did I just love, love, love Murphy Brown to pieces, but you were actually on the TV when I was giving birth to my daughter. So you can imagine how delighted I felt. Oh my God. (laughs) It went from pushing a baby out with you in the background to sitting across from you in your little (laughs) library. That was pretty awesome. Oh, that's amazing. So let's turn to Murphy Brown, because what I love is at the time that Murphy Brown aired, as far as I can remember, there was really only one other comedy that focused on strong women. That was Designing Women. But Murphy Mm -hmm. was the first show that put a 
strong and deeply flawed woman at the epicenter of news and politics. So I want to hear more from you. I know you've told these stories before, but it's incredible. How did you and Diane collaborate? And with the reboot, what changed in that collaboration? Well, Diane fought to hang on to Murphy's flaws. The network, CBS, first of all, wanted Murphy to be younger. They wanted Heather Locklear. They wanted Murphy (laughs) not to be coming back from Betty Ford, but from a spa. So they wanted to defang her from the get-go. And Diane had to really fight to keep her original image of the show, which came to her in her car driving on the freeway. The name, Murphy Brown, the idea for the show, it all came to her with like one of those mysterious creative clouds that just filtered, that came in her window. And she had it all. And by the time she got to work, she had the show in her mind. Fully formed, I think. We were on a plane together yesterday. And she produced the show and she left after four years. And the reboot last year, which she didn't want to do a full season because she thought it would just be so exhausting. And it really, the writers on Half Hour Comedies, there's what they call the back nine, which is the last nine shows after the first chunk that go from September through the first of the year. And then there are the last nine. And writers, you just see their energy draining (laughs) out of their body. There's just like pools of it on the floor and they can barely put one foot in front of the other because they put in late nights and it's very intense. It's also fun because they're comedy writers, so they laugh a lot, but it's exhausting. So we did 13 shows. That was Diane's choice. But then I had to do the show in New York because my husband can't travel. So she had to build the show. I mean, if we'd done it in L.A., we had Warner Brothers, we had the soundstage. It would have been organic and easy. I mean, it would have been a lot of work, but it would have been much, much easier. But we had to start from scratch in Astoria in Queens, and we had a wonderful time there. But I saw the soundstage when it was empty. There was not a bleacher, not a paper clip on the floor. It was just a stark, huge space. And six wow. weeks later, all of the sets were built and the bleachers were in and my trailer was in. And that was because our producer, Frank Pace and Diane had done all of that in record time. So that by the time she started working on the show, she was exhausted just from getting everything ready to shoot in, just from giving mm-hmm. us a workspace. And they recreated the townhouse from the original architectural plan so that when I first saw the townhouse, I burst into tears. And the whole experience of the reboot for me was so emotional. Being with Faith and Joe and Grant, the original cast, and seven of our original writers. And every time we would do intros, I would be in tears and I would have Faith. And Faith would come into my trailer that before intros to give me a hug. She knew that I was like a mess. And it was just, we were all so grateful to be doing it and to be together again, frankly. It was really a gift. Well, I know that in the later seasons of Murphy Brown, the original, they would invite you in to talk about, for example, how are we going to handle Murphy being a single mother? Because you had really strong opinions. Like you didn't want her to be this hard charging jerk who like forgot that she had a kid back home. You really wanted them. Well, they to had to one episode where one episode they had Murphy got back and missed her son's birthday. And he was like four at the time. I said, I, you can't do that. I said, I'm not going to do that. And <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm not going to miss my child's birthday. And some of the writers had kids, so they got it. But I was very strict on the boundaries of motherhood and eccentricity. I mean, she can be cranky, she can be professional, but not at the expense of her child. Mm. So glad (laughs) you put your foot down. Did they invite you into the season breakdown for the reboot in the same way? Did you weigh in on what really important to you? The writer's room is a very private room. I've never been in a writer's room except to deliver 
fake dog shit in someone's sandwich. But and that was just for <laughs> what now? <laughs> oh, that of course. <laughs> but uh, no, I've never been in the writers' room, and I don't belong there. I don't mean to ascribe it magical powers, but it's a very specific energy, and they. On the reboot, they had great energy in the writer's room. And it takes very little to throw that off. That's wise. So going back to the first season of the first Murphy Brown in 1988, you were really in the center of it, Candace. I mean, it was an immediate hit. The press loved it. It was rooted in current events. You had all the biggest stars like Elizabeth Taylor and Julia Roberts and JFK Jr., Martin Sheen. But then you had the George Clooney, right? You had yeah, George Clooney. You had Walter <laughs> Cronkite and Katie Couric and Wolf Blitzer and Mike Wallace and John King Kennedy and, Jr. Right, and you were doing actual shoots of fake magazine covers to decorate the walls. But then the show morphed from commenting on the culture to becoming embedded in it, and then you had the real covers of Time yeah. and Music and all of that. Yeah. So I guess great. my question is, when you're on TV like that, and you're a hit like that, and you're welcomed everywhere you go, is that the weirdest experience? How long does it take to get used to that? Well, first of all, when you're doing that and you have a child, you're not out and about much. I mean, Got except it. at the park. And the schedule for a half-hour show is great because you drop your child off at school, you go to work. And then you're home to give her a bath. So it's a very doable schedule. An hour show is not. An hour show is just a killer schedule. But I wouldn't walk around and, you know, get feedback. But it was very heady anyway. And I, but I was so old at that point. I was 41 when I started Murphy Brown. So I wasn't like a kid. It was not my first rodeo. But I'd never been in a rodeo like that one. And it was, just head spinning. And it was, it well, was you had, exhausting. You wrote that you had 15 years of basically bad notices. You did have an Academy Award nomination, but you wrote that off as kind of a, a one-off, an anomaly. And now suddenly <laughs> oh, you are the... <laughs> yeah, right. As if there could have been an anomaly. But right. you were credited with making CBS number one again. 38 million people would watch your episodes. You're getting written up, you know, Rolling Stone and said, you're a zesty ball buster and it called you hard candy. So to what extent <laughs> did this ebullient, fearless Murphy Brown inflect you and infect you? How much did it that... It made me a much more aggressive driver. <laughs> <laughs> I, did I, you yell at I people cut, out the window? I cut off someone. It sort of, I kind of cut in front of him. It was a friend of my brother's. And he called my brother. He said, hey, your sister cut me off today. On the, and I mean, I just was like cutting through driveways. I was going up and yeah, it just gave me this kind of zets of confidence and bravado that was very unusual for me. <laughs> that petered out. It was like a, for a few months. Oh, but I also when you're doing a show like that, you have to, especially the first year of a show, the press demands are insatiable because you have to carpet bomb the public with Murphy Brand, Murphy Brand. So every lunch hour, well, every lunch hour or half hour, I was doing press. And then when we would wrap and the cast would go home, I was doing press and I was doing press. I mean, I was just oh always God. and learning my lines sometimes because Murphy drove the show and I was in every scene for right. 10 years. And I would sometimes just have tears coming down my cheeks because they don't stick after a while. And then I would go home and I would have to sit on an uncomfortable chair to not fall asleep and learn my lines because otherwise I was just... <laughs> but the reboot wasn't... They were much more respectful of my age on the reboot. Diane said, I'm not going to give you any more of those monologues. And I said, bless you. <laughs> did you have to write your lines in coffee cups the way you did on the original? No, I didn't. I didn't cheat at all. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I know. That's wonderful. <laughs> hey, Betsy, will you do our rapid fire? These are just quick little answers. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. So you're in the Five Timers Club for hosting Silent Live. So what was your favorite skit? Uh, 
I guess the favorite was when I went up with Gilda in a sketch with Gilda, and I called her my character's name. And it really had never happened before that anyone went up during the show and burst out laughing. And Gilda, of course, took it and flew with it. And I loved Gilda very much. I mean, everybody loved Gilda. She was yeah. She was I a national that treasure. Skit. You guys were just on the floor laughing. <laughs> so would you host a sixth time if they asked you? I've hosted six shows. I'm okay. at a five-timers club, but I've hosted the show six times. And you were the first would you woman do it again? for the five-timers. You know, I think I did it. And I'm not so sure that I have the stamina for You have no idea the demands of that show. Just doing a little sketch on the Five Timers Club a few months ago and seeing the speed of people tearing back and forth. And it's just the most nerve-wracking thing. It's thrilling. And it's so much fun. But it's, I mean, you know, it it was not an accident that cocaine was the drug of choice because (laughs) speed is of the essence. So would you rather do theater or live TV? Which would be more fun or nerve-wracking for you? Well, both. I mean, you know, I love theater because I love <laughs> I love the utter dedication to the job that people have. Mm-hmm. They get paid nothing. I don't know how they live. I don't think they know how they live. But they love their work. They respect the theater, the traditions of the theater. And when you see a play that's a long-running play, It is, the costumes are fresh, the actors are fresh. I mean, they make every performance count. And I thought, well, they probably slough it off in the matinees. They don't. They really have a standard of professionalism that is unlike anything in film or TV. I grew up in the theater, and I would agree with that. I grew up in local theater. My parents helped found a theater in our hometown and it always amazed me. I understood the kids, you know, kids getting into theater, but it amazed me the dedication of the adults who would come after work and just work and work and work for nothing. Like you said, it was just true passion. Just passion. Yeah. It was really impressive. That said, well, Candy, people know you for your acting and your writing, but I also adore all your other creative outlets. You used to draw when Chloe was little to sort of bring her imagination to life. And now you're painting Bergen bags for charity. You're thinking of collecting your photography into another book. I also think that you put an incredible amount of energy into getting people really hilarious, witty presents or pulling off these amazing practical jokes. So how do all these creative outlets inform each other? I remember when you and I were just finishing up the book, we talked about the importance of not letting your creative side go back to sleep. I'll so how tell do you keep why. It Betsy, it's because of you telling me you should be doing something creative every day. And I, I think of it that. all the time. <laughs> well, you see, that's what happened. But I remember it, and I'll be going back to Bergen Bags in the next few days because I've had about 30 on hold. And oh my God! Wow, because I've taken quite a long paying hiatus, but I don't like to not be active. So I'm going to be setting up in the breakfast room, and my husband, who has had a rest from handbags all over the breakfast room and the dining room, <laughs> will <laughs> will be back where he was. And well, Candy, explain what Bergen bags are to listeners who haven't had the joy of seeing them yet. Well. Bergen bags are personalized tote bags. They're Goyard or Vuitton tote bags. And people send me their new or their used Vuitton or Goyard bags. And those bags have a surface that's waxed canvas that's ideal to paint on for me. And they send me photographs of their dogs or tell me what they would like. And I've raised about $80,000. Wow. And the proceeds go to the ASPCA or the NRDC, which is the mm. Natural Resources National Defense, Resources Council. Defense Council. National Resources Defense Council, my favorite. That's right. And I've painted camels, hamsters, <laughs> Clydesdales. I mean, it's been a range. I'm happier painting animals. I don't 
do people as well as animals, but I've painted cityscapes, uh, I mean floral, but that's so kind of boring. But the bags that I'm going to accept, what I don't paint anymore are the little white fluffy dogs because I can't stand it anymore. Everybody sends me these photographs of their Maltese and I just think, ugh, because <laughs> it takes forever and you have to do like 40 layers to give it any depth. I try to make it... Sorry, really Mother Earth, like no more animal. cockapoos. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Candace, you are such a big reader. Any current favorite books on your nightstand? So what I have just finished in Arizona, where I was a few days ago, is Michael Ondaatje's The Cat's Table. And I also read Ondaatje's Warlight. And Michael Ondaatje, as I'm sure the listeners know, wrote The English Patient. And English he's patient, probably yeah. considered our greatest living author or one of them. One of And them. he's just an exceptional writer. And wow. he always writes about people and places that you would never think of. And I mean, in Warlight, Warlight was set in London just after World War II. And, and I mean, there are always surprises at the end. And Cat's Table is the story of these three young boys on a boat from Ceylon or Colombo to London. And, and I love his work. I also love Jane Gardam. Do you know her work, you guys? Jane Gardam is a British author, and she wrote a book that somebody came backstage when I was doing theater, and they left a book backstage. They didn't sign it, so I don't know who it was. And it was such a gift, because it was a book called Old Filth. And I thought, I don't have time. (laughs) That's a great title. It's a great title, and what it means is Failed in London, Try Hong Kong. No. <laughs> and Old Filth is about this little boy. It's the story of the life of a man who is an orphan of the Raj. He's born in India. His parents have died. And he is sent back to England alone on a ship and goes to, he's alone in life. And wow. he becomes a barrister in London. He becomes a barrister, but of no great importance. So he goes to Hong Kong and he marries. But he's the most compelling character and the book has such wit and such pathos. And it's a trilogy. I don't know if it's called the Old Filth Trilogy. Yeah, but it's called the Old yeah. Filth Trilogy. I just looked it up. And the second <laughs> is book it? is The Man in the Wooden Hat. And the final is The Last yes. Friends. And they're from 1950. Yeah. Really? Cool. Yeah. Oh, they're just wonderful to read. And I read a book recently, Any Human Heart by William Boyd, which is a wonderful Uh novel. And I don't really like novels, but I've read those and loved them. And then I finished Peter the Great last year. Oh, was it good? It's a wonderful, endless read. It takes (laughs) most of my year, but it shows you the formation of Europe. It shows you You learn oh, so much. Amazing. And Raymond Massey wrote it, and he's such an accessible writer and a wonderful historian. I always get those books on audio, and then when I'm cleaning the horse stalls, I just turn it on, and I make the horses listen. I'm like, sorry, guys, we got to listen to another one. It's usually books about death and conquering and <laughs> the Middle East and assuming that my horses just tune it out. <laughs> Linda, I've had horses. They don't tune much in, frankly. Um, <laughs> I think well, you guys are both dog lovers. Yeah. I mean, I love horses, but they're not big givers. Well, mine, I have one that's like a big dog because I'm a dog freak. And I always say that, you know, Betsy has two children. She has a boy and a girl who grew up very close and they grew up with cats. But man, I'm a, my kid grew up with dogs. He thinks his siblings were dogs. So. Every time I get another dog, I think, oh, my God, I can't tell Bessie. She's just going to call me the crazy dog lady. But you're kind of a dog freak, too, Candy. I love dogs. Every night I waste hours on Pinterest worming through dog stories. And they're always (laughs) abused, and people bring them back to life, and sometimes they don't. I mean, it's just, 
I just love dogs. Yeah. And I think they're capable of superhuman powers. I do too. I think there are reasons for living. Like if there were no dogs, I seriously don't know that I would want to even be on the planet. Right. Right. I understand. And you were costuming your dogs before dog costumes were a thing, Candy. You were just way <laughs> ahead of the curve on that one. I didn't know that they had become a thing, but I didn't cook with my daughter, but we would have dog costume parties, and they were great fun. You couldn't come unless you had a dog, and the dog had to be in costume. And one person brought a dog who wore a yarmulke, and one person brought a dog. They tied a fleece bath mat around the dog, and it came as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, uh, I mean... People were really witty. One dog came as a convict and striped. You know, it was it was uh, it was great. Were these theater people, Hollywood people? Well, of course, because they have the show best. folk. You call they, them. Those are the best people for Halloween or any kind of dress up. Anything. Yeah, you will not find prominent realtors dressing up their dogs. <laughs> You know, well, Candy that, also that got I, the costumer from Murphy Brown to dress Chloe for Halloween. So how lucky was that? I did. She went oh my to eat a banana. <laughs> Your last comment reminds me about when I was reading some of those love letters that Louis gave you, and I thought, oh my gosh, he was so, well, he was one of the finest minds of his generation, the most creative yeah. minds of his generation. And having been married, I was married 19 years to an actor who wrote poetry, and I remember how emotional and dramatic it can be being with a creative like that. But you and I both veered in a very different direction. You married Marshall, a very kind, very sane, punctual businessman. You said from a totally other world, I've done the same. I'm, my fiance is very kind, very sane, incredibly punctual from a totally different world. And I don't know it's about not you, easy. I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful for the two extremes. I'm grateful for the gifts that I received in the two arenas. It's just been an amazing experience of learning. Has yeah. that been like that for you? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do prefer show folk. I, I mean, I have to put on a grown-up suit to be around some of his friends. It's getting easier now, but really, it's an effort for me. Yeah. I to be with people for whom humor dinner. is a novelty. It's like, are you joking? What are you, are you, I mean, they just don't know. They just don't know. <laughs> Well, well, I saw you, you know, making incursions into uh, your beautifully appointed Fifth Avenue apartment. And I saw a little solar-powered Queen Elizabeth doing her queenly wave that you had installed. And, you know, <laughs> whenever I was at your place for holidays, at Halloween, there would be a witch's legs protruding from underneath a door jam. And, you know, I think, oh, it's gotten I think worse, you've made Betsy. your presence. Really? <laughs> yeah. I've got African beaded chairs. I've got, it's, I just. I just took over the living room. Oh, that's good. Well, I, I think it needed your help. Yeah. And your yeah. humor. I brought a big sage bowl one time into the living room, and I started lighting it, and I was putting sage all over the house, and he thought the house was on fire. He came in, he goes, what are you doing? And I said, don't you know what this is? Everybody does this. I'm cleansing this space. He's just looking at me like he's never seen anything so bizarre in all of his life. <laughs> I'm like, welcome to my world, babe. Get used to it. <laughs> Yes, they're just puzzled a lot. <laughs> but I'm much more punctual, and I pay my bills on time now. I'm, I'm better. It's, there's no yeah, is it? But are you better? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. Mm, all right. Candace, thank you so much. Bet's good to talk to you, honey. And good to talk and to Linda, you. Ver and nice write to another you, book, Linda. baby. Oh, yeah. I'll be rushing oh, out yeah. to do that. <laughs> and thanks Nothing. for everything. Many okay, thanks. Goodbye, guys. Thank you. Right, bye, good bye. care. Bye-bye. What a spitfire. They just don't make them like that anymore. I encourage you to pick up either of Candace's timeless memoirs, Knockwood or A Fine Romance. And check out bergenbags.com where her tagline, from one old bag to another, <laughs> is just too good. As for Betsy, you can find all things Rappaport at BetsyRappaport.com and BetsyRappaportLifeCoaching.com, including ways in which you can join her in exotic, far-flung places around the globe. 
I want to send a shout out to our show's designer, Julia McPherson, and our sound engineer, Kevin Baker of Red Room Sound. If you love what we're up to and want to support us, please consider leaving five stars and or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. And if you're moved to share a favorite thought or quote on social media from this episode or another, be sure and use the Beautiful Writers Podcast hashtag and tag me so I can see it. Lastly, all sorts of best-selling book babies are being conceived and birthed at my writing retreats at the stunning La Playa Hotel in Carmel-by-the-Sea. It's a heavenly location for being pampered and hearing the muse. And retreaters often tell me they get more done during that Monday through Friday than in years on their own. We're all full up until August, but you can find our later dates and loads of video and written testimonials over on beautifulwriterspodcast.com or bookmama.com. As always, thank you for sharing your oh-so-precious time with us here. Grateful doesn't even begin to describe it. Now, imagine that Murphy Brown is saying to you, Go sit your butt down and put pen to paper or fingers on keyboard. (laughs) I don't really sound like her, but you get the gist. If Candy can write two big books without a work ethic, come on, you've got this. Until next time, write on. Write on.